Shalom, Reverend John Ferret again. And since March of 2020, we have done over 270 podcasts. And I think for some of you that have been regular subscribers, regular listeners, you know that my main emphasis has been upon a Torah study for Christians. In other words, the study of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As of now, we're at Genesis 31. We've got to get to Genesis 50 to finish that book. And we're at Exodus chapter 20, concentrating on an in-depth, detailed study of Asaret HaDevarim, the Ten Statements of God, which we have translated as the Ten Commandments. We got 19 more chapters to go, like I said in Genesis, and 20 more to go to Exodus. And it's time to stop and ask, where did all of this start? Where are we now? And where is this going? As Christians, as those of us who really are trying to be true disciples of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, we, we already have a pretty good idea. It's the cross. It makes sense in light of the very words of God, the very words of Jesus in John 5, verse 39. John 5, 39. Jesus is in the temple courts. He's with the chief priests, probably with a number of scribes, maybe other priests, maybe even a few Pharisees. He's talking them probably between 24 to 30 AD. And at that time, all they had, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, is the Hebrew Scriptures. There was no New Testament. And the main books are the Torah. That's the foundational books of the Hebrew Bible. Again, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now Jesus says to them then, that scripture testifies of him. The implication is all scripture testifies of him. That all scripture is all about him. So with this in mind, what we want to do is check out this review. Now we've already seen many instances already in these first 73 lessons on Genesis where the very words of God connect to Jesus and it's the same thing in the lessons on Exodus. We've already seen the truth of Jesus' own words in John 5.39. So come, let's do this quick review. Let's again see that all Torah is presenting a problem. The entire Hebrew Scriptures, the entire Old Testament, is presenting a problem. And it's a problem that's looking for a solution. So come. Let's continue our study. Let's continue our focus on the very words of God. The words of God that testify of Yeshua, who is the answer. Come, let's go.
Now, as true disciples, we want to Shema Adonai Yeshua. Now, Shema is a Hebrew word. You know it. You've heard it before. And that is uh, when Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Okay, and the Shema Israel, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. So the Shema, you see it as here. And many of you have been in my classes long enough to realize that a Hebrew word is conceptual in meaning and it doesn't have a definition. Um, what I like about Shema is you have to take a bunch of verbs from English and kind of put them all together to understand what it means. So Shema basically means to hear so that you're listening to what you're hearing and to understand that so that you'll be able to react and do. Here's a good example. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we won't go there, okay? Don't open it up because it's a long prayer by Solomon, about half the chapter, okay? And Solomon is dedicating the temple. Uh, it's a, uh, it is the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, ancient Israel. And he has this long prayer, page after page after page after page. Then you get to 1 Kings 9.3, and then God says in 1 Kings 9.3, Solomon, I heard your prayer. It doesn't say that. It says, Solomon, I shemad your prayer. In other words, I heard what you said because I was listening to you. I understand your words, and I will do what you asked me to do. 1 Kings 9.3, God answered his prayer. That's awesome. So we want to Shema Adonai Yeshua. We want to listen. We want to understand his words. We want to grasp them so that we will re react and do. And the one verse, matter of fact, I'll go there right now is in John 8, verses 31 through 32. And it's become a standard verse that I use. It's uh, in the notes that you have regarding the background on this class and so on. Um, but in 1 John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... Now this is the ESV. In the, I know in the New American Standard it says, If you continue in my word. Okay, so here we have abide in my word. You are truly my disciples. Whoa, stop. This is important. If you're a disciple, you abide in his word. If you're a disciple, you continue in his word. We need to understand that. We need to shema. We need to hear it, listen it, grab those words so we understand what's going on, so we can act on it. Why? So we can have the characteristics of a true disciple of Jesus. That's huge, just that one phrase. So, uh, to abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So, when we look at that, um, the Greek word that's used there is meno. However, you can use Thayer's Greek lexicon, and if you have the most updated Thayer's Greek lexicon, it will actually show you the two to three um, widely used Hebrew words in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay, that this word may know translates. And so to do that, you go there and you find out that the most popular word in the Hebrew text that was translated to may know, okay, in the Septuagint, 
and may no means to abide or continue is a word called Ahmad. And Ahmad, uh, its Strong's number is H5975, uh, just for your information. May know, the Greek word is, uh, its Strong's number is G3306, again for your information. But it has such a wide application. The Greek word almost is conceptual in meaning. And it means to stand or to remain or remain standing, to set firmly, to persist, to endure, to persevere. Okay? So this is more than abide, it's more than continue. This is huge. It's almost like you're saying, we want to live a life standing on his word. We want to have our standard set firmly in the word of God. This is our life. And no matter what happens, good or bad, we want to remain. We want to remain true to him and remain true to his word. In the midst of all the evil that surrounds us, we want to persist. Persist in obeying his word and being the people of God that this word calls us out to be. In short, <laughs> to be his disciples. So if we're going to amad in his word, this whole conceptual meaning, part of that means to study his word. We have to study his word so that we can hear it, understand what the words are saying so that we can react to it and do it. So amad seems to me very close to Shema in my own, in my own mind. So we want to amad in his word, so therefore we need to study. I think the Jewish people, the Hebrews, uh, actually jumped on this. There's, there's a marvelous saying that they did. Uh, this is in Exodus 24-7. We won't go there again. But in Exodus 24-7, Moses is writing the covenant. I think he's writing the Ten Commandments. And basically he says, okay, guys, guess what? Here it is. It's, a, it's the commandments. So the people say this. And the Hebrew is, yes, na ase ve nishma. So I'd like you guys in the audience today, and those of you that are listening on audio, please repeat after me. Na ase ve nishma. Let's do that again. Na ase ve nishma. What does it mean? We will do and we will hear. Now, ve nishma, shema, hear it? Okay, that's shema. So it's not just here. It's to hear so that you're listening to the words so that you, as you understand the words, the result is that you will do it. So it, it, it responds to action. So let's do that one more time. This is going to be something we'll be repeating every week. Na'ase ve nishma. So you can look it up in Exodus 24-7. We will do and we will hear. So us too, the same thing. So that's why you're here. All of us. I get fed, okay, and I've been being fed by the Lord in this stuff for a long time. The notes that I have and all the resources that I have collected over all these years, you can see I've brought about one hundredth of them here. But anyway, um, I get fed and I really believe as we get fed, as you get fed, you're supposed to go feed others. So you are here tonight, I'm to feed his sheep, but guess what, I'm one of the sheep. I'm one of you, okay? It just so happens I got the stuff. I'm going to give you the stuff. You get the stuff. You got to go and feed those sheep. So let's do a review. Where in the heck have we, what's been happening, all right, since, since the term one? 
Well, uh, God created the earth and the heavens. And we got free will. And just imagine, we got free will and we can do anything we darn well please except one thing. One thing. Do not eat the fruit of a tree. That's it. That's all God said. Don't do that. So what did we do? We blew it. Okay. And things got worse. Because the next thing that happens is Cain kills Abel. So now we have non-premeditated murder. We talked about that in term one. That was not, uh, that was not murder. Okay, it was like manslaughter. Because did Cain really understand what he was doing? Because God never said in the Torah, don't murder. Okay, I could just see, what does that mean? Okay, don't hit your brother over the head with, with malice and a forethought. So the first uh, murder. And things still go downhill. It goes downhill until we finally get to the fact that in Genesis 6, God is really sad. He's sad. He's not angry. That's really interesting to take a look at, that he's so sad for what he's done. And so he says, you know, that's it. I, everything's gone. I'm going to destroy it all. I'm going to destroy every man, every woman, and every animal. Which is very interesting. Why would he destroy the animals? He said, what did they do? Okay. Which is a very interesting uh, discussion because uh, one view of, uh, of a scholar that I study from said, what are the animals, what's their purpose? What do animals do? They eat, they poop, they make more little animals. And they continue eating and pooping and making more little animals. And that's it. Okay? What purpose do they have? They're made for us. So if there's no human beings, why have animals? It's a very interesting perspective. They were made for us. Adam had the name all of them. It's very interesting. We won't go there, but it's a very interesting thought. He finds this one guy, Noah, who is righteous for his time. Okay, he's not like to totally righteous, but he's righteous for his time. And because of that, God's grace saves not only him, but seven others. His wife, his three sons, and his three daughters. But after the flood, we come down to these statements. So I'm going into the Torah now. I'm going to Genesis 6, 5. In Genesis 6, 5, we, this is before the flood. So here's the reason why. Okay, he wanted to kill everybody. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that all the impulse of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. Okay, now when you take a look at that Hebrew word for continually, it means all the time, forever, nonstop. It doesn't end. Can't, all men, okay? So then we go to Genesis 8.21 after the flood. And God says this, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the impulse of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither again will I smite anymore everything living as I have done. So again, the impulse of man's heart is evil from his youth. What men? There's only eight people standing there. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters. Nothing's changed. So the question is, why the flood? You really have to ask ourselves the question. It's almost like God is saying, the only way to get rid of this evil impulse and the evil that comes from us, sin, the only way we can get rid of it, okay, is destroy all of us. That's it. That's the only way to do it. But God so loved the world. There's another way. And God wanted to find another way. So Noah was this righteous guy, and all of a sudden things start keep going, 
And we finally get down to Genesis chapter 11. And what we have is we say there's a problem looking for a solution. That's Genesis 1 through 11. There's no Jews there. There's no Hebrews. There's no Torah. There's nothing. Oh, there's Seth and there's some righteous people. Okay, we can see that. And so again, in Genesis 1 through 11, we have this problem looking for a solution. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, God comes to Abraham and said, Hey, Abraham, go from your land. Go to the land that I will show you, and here's what's going to happen. And he promises him stuff. I'm going to give you people. You're going to have lots of descendants. You're going to have a great name in the earth. And we would say, look at the three major monotheistic religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abraham is big, okay? That's very interesting. He does have a big name in the, all the earth. You're going to have uh, a land. You're going to have property. It happens to be Israel, okay? And on top of that, you're going to have a special purpose. And the purpose is, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The first time. And our question if you remember in Genesis 12, 1, I think that was in the second session, we asked the question, why him? And if you remember, we had to go through those chapters from chapter 12 on, practically all the way through his death, and look back on his life and say, wow, now we see why. We need to take a look at Abraham. And that's what we did is this death. So it was the beginning of the plan and I'm going to go into the Torah, into Genesis 12, 3. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And it was fascinating because we have scholarly evidence. I mean, amazing evidence to say that word blessed only in this verse has such a unique grammatical structure in Hebrew that it can come from two different roots. Okay, to bow down or to graft in. So you can read this verse another way, and it's and it's and it's credible. It's lot. It's exact. Okay, through you all the families of the earth will be grafted in. Wow. I remember in this class I had a woman um, who is a Hebrew expert, and she took my Hebrew class. And she's not here now. She uh, emailed me about uh, two weeks ago, and she said it, she's dr it's driving her crazy that she can't be here. But she is doing some s significant Christian work. Uh, she's out there doing, uh, she's doing, okay? So she heard and she went to do, but uh, maybe she'll be back next year. But she is a Hebrew expert, and I remember her going nuts because she had her little iPad, and she has gone of all her stuff, and she got up and she lectured. I don't know if you, some of you were here. But she actually got up during her discussion period and she actually lectured and said, John is right. Okay, and I gave you some of those references and maybe you still have that written down. It's interesting because we go to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, this gets interesting. Grafted in. Grafted into what? Okay, we'd say grafted into the olive tree of Israel. Grafted into Israel. We're grafted in. We're not Jews, we're not Hebrews, but we're grafted into the promises of God. We're grafted into the family of Abraham. Now listen to this. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Whoa, that's exactly what we're talking about. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham by saying, here's the gospel. Here it is. The gospel according to Moses, because Moses wrote it, right? And he gave it to Abraham. In you, all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Genesis 12, 3 is the gospel. Where's the gospel? You just read it. Paul verified it. You know what's fascinating? Is the, the rabbi who actually discovered that unique way of looking at this word blessed here in Genesis 12, 3 was a contemporary of Paul. Paul said, you are grafted in. This rabbi said, you're grafted in. They were contemporaries. So who taught who? God's got something going on and he's going to go through Abraham. Hieroglyphics already were being used uh, by um, the Egyptians, certainly. The Sumerians were already having a written language. Uh, there was probably, uh, yeah, I'm going to say there was some sort of a, a written language. They were writing at that time. I don't think Abraham may have been doing it. Otherwise, we would maybe still have writings. Sumerian we have, Egyptian, yeah, so. And I'm no expert on, matter of fact, my, my wife and I were just talking about, they were talking about languages. Uh, and it's fascinating just to throw a thought out. Um, they, uh, archaeologists in Egypt, were trying to determine uh, how Egypt actually became Egypt. And it's fascinating, the archaeology. But they actually, they, they actually believe that they have discovered the written language of the Egyptians almost 500 to 1,000 years before the Sumerians. Written language comes from Egypt. No, it, hieroglyphics. Okay, hieroglyphics. So, I mean, that was just, that's their, the way to do it. So, pictures and so on. Anyway, so Abraham definitely is the beginning. And I like this. Yeshua is the end. What did he say in John 19.30? It is finished. Not his ministry. The plan. It's the plan. The problem in Genesis 1 through 11 was looking for a solution. All of a sudden, Abraham comes along. It starts there. You know what's interesting? Rabbis would say that Abraham is the rock, the foundation upon which he would build his plan of redemption. Okay, What's Jesus? He's the cornerstone. Where, where do you put the cornerstone? On the foundation. And the rest of the house is built upon that. Now hang on to that. Hopefully we'll get to the end here. Hopefully we'll get to the end tonight when I will come back to stones. So this, matter of fact, this demonstrates one of the goals of this class, the gospel according to Moses. In other words, how does, the, how does Torah testify of Yeshua? In John 5.39, and we have brought this up time and again uh, on the, in this class, Jesus says, all scripture testifies of me. We won't go into the background of what was going on, but he says that between 24 to 30 AD, and all they had was the Old Testament. And so, so in the Hebrew, we have that connection to him. And so, again, that's what we're attempting to do. If Jesus said it, they understood it then. Okay, do I believe that the New Testament's the Bible, the scripture? Oh, of course. But that, that's not what happened in when he said it, in 24 to 30 AD. So it's finished in him. So we're still doing the review. So the promises, what happens, they pass to Isaac, not Ishmael, who's the legal firstborn. 
Then after that, it goes to Jacob, not to Esau, the legal firstborn. And it brings us to Genesis 31, because the plan continues. And now, at Genesis 31, Jacob's family with Rachel and Leah, uh, their maidservants, okay, Bilhah and Zilpah, 11 sons and one daughter, Dina, and he is very, very wealthy. So we're done with our review. And basically, here in Genesis 31 or in Exodus 20 or in any part of the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a problem looking for a solution. And how are our sins, our intentional, purposeful sins, cleansed and forgiven? The great Jewish Torah scholar, Rabbi Akiva in the early 2nd century, and again, Rabbi Maimonides, the great Rabbi Maimonides in Judaism in the 12th century AD, and the writer of the book of Hebrews all agree. There is no sacrifice, no ritual, no procedure in the Hebrew scriptures that will cleanse us of intentional sin. Nothing. Considering, or not considering, consider Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, meaning the Torah, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, in other words, something's missing in the Torah, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now there are some that say, wait a minute, there's a sin sacrifice. We read about that in Leviticus chapter 4. But you need to read it very, very carefully. And we have come across this a couple of times in our study in Genesis, and it's going to be clear, especially in Exodus chapter 20 when we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. But when we read Leviticus 4 very, very carefully, it says it's only for unintentional sin. The Hebrew is shegaga chata. Shegaga, the Hebrew or the Strong's number is H7684, means a mistake, an error, something that's done inadvertently, not on purpose. So when we put the two words together, sheg aga chachata, that is an, in, an inadvertent sin, a mistake. So you guys on Yom Kippur, there's a sin sacrifice. Oh, I agree. You're going to read about that in Leviticus 16. But by the very words of God, a sin sacrifice is only for errors, a mistakes, something that you didn't mean to do. It's not for intentional sin. That's what these three Jews are getting at. Akiva, Maimonides, and the writer of Hebrews. Now, Akiva and Maimonides and rabbinic Judaism, they made up their own solution. It was based upon their own opinion. And on top of that, there's no blood sacrifice that's needed. Now, to me, this makes no sense. 
when we take a look at Leviticus 4, the sin sacrifice, and we consider the phrase, sheg aga chachata, unintentional sin, Leviticus 4, the very words of God says, blood sacrifices are required for the cleansing of unintentional sin, mistakes. <laughs> this is amazing. This is the very words of God. If a mistake, an error, something that we inadvertently did requires a blood sacrifice, by the very words of God, how much more would an intentional sin require a blood sacrifice? In the Old Testament, there's no such sacrifices. There's no such way to becoming righteous again before the Father. The Old Testament is missing something. It's incomplete. That amazing covenant that God established with his people at Sinai is incomplete. But Jesus said something very interesting. It's at his Last Supper. We would say it's the initiation of what we would call the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, Holy Communion. And in two places, in Matthew 26, 28, and in Mark 14, 24, Jesus said his blood is the blood of the covenant. He did not say in these two verses, let me repeat that again. This is Matthew 26, verse 28, and Mark 14, verse 24. Jesus did not say this is the blood of the new covenant. He said this is my blood of the, of the covenant. Could it be? that Jesus is telling his disciples, and therefore us, that his blood, his sacrifice, is the missing piece of God's covenant. The missing piece of the covenant at Sinai. Is he only showing us that he's the only way to the Father? Why? Because he's the only sacrifice in the very words of God to finish it all. He said it. At the moment of his death in John 19.30, it is complete. It is finished. The answer, the only answer that the entire Old Testament has been searching for has been given. Now the problem in the Hebrew Scriptures has been attained. It's, it, it finally got its answer. And that is why there is only one way to the Father. That's why people are so mistaken today in our 21st century world and they say yes jesus is a way to the father there are many many other ways to god no they don't understand the completeness of god's word a blood sacrifice is required so that we would become righteous before the father jesus is the only way he is the only answer so, I will see you in Lesson 75. Sheyi chaye lachem shalom, b'shem Yeshua Adonenu. May you have shalom in the name of Jesus, our Lord.